Welcome to 15 Minutes of Feminism, part of our On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin at Ms. Magazine platform. We are a platform that reports, rebels, and you know we tell it like it is. Joining me today is Erin Carmen. Erin is a senior correspondent at New York Magazine and the co-author of Notorious RBG, The Life and Times of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. It's been just over a year since Justice Ginsburg passed away. So in today's episode, we're reckoning with her legacy, looking at the excellent, the brave, the good and the bad, and ask the important questions. How did her death shape the current fight around abortion rights and other issues? Should she have retired? And is there a silver lining or a solution to the challenges that are currently being seen with the United States Supreme Court as being out of touch and out of reach of the average American. Helping me to sort out these questions and even more is an incredibly special guest. Thank you, Erin, for joining me. Erin, you literally wrote the book on Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And so many people are curious, a year after her death, how has the court changed? Where does it stand right now? Well, um, our book was called Notorious RBG, in part inspired by the week that Justice Ginsburg spent dissenting uh, from the bench in record cadence, especially in the case Shelby County versus Holder. And the reason I start by answering your question that way is because she rose to prominence in part in loss. The court was, as you know, deeply conservative before in a way that was intensified after Bush v. Gore um, that often left her in the minority 5-4. But as we see from the Supreme Court, it could always get worse. So uh, a decades-long project to dismantle um, much of the advances of the 20th century has culminated now in Donald Trump having named three members of the U.S. Supreme Court, including Justice Ginsburg's uh, successor, Amy Coney Barrett, who stands in total opposition to everything uh, that she fought for her whole life. And uh, in fact, the Supreme Court is poised to take on, um, again, decades of, Supreme, of uh, abortion jurisprudence. The fragile architecture, it's already pretty rickety, but the mm -hmm. fragile architecture that protects abortion rights in the most hostile states is seemingly about to be dismantled. So it's, it's, I would say that it is a decades long trend that the right has single-handedly focused on um, accomplishing the, the, what we are apparently about to see today and that that has accelerated uh, in the wake of Justice Ginsburg's death. Her death in some ways was an accelerant on the things that were already in motion. And I want to actually bifurcate now because I wanna take up RBG's legacy on the court, as well as what's going to be coming next. So very recently, there has been some critique about Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, about whether she stayed on the court too long. And then what some are saying are shocking details from Katie Couric in a forthcoming memoir, revealing that uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, had some startling views about black athletes and they're kneeling on football fields. Can you unpack a little bit of that? Yeah, obviously there's a lot there to unpack. Um, I want to start uh, with the retirement question, um, just because in some ways it's, it's, I don't know if it's easier, but I think I have a clearer read on it. Um, 
so as a person living in the world with beliefs and the ability to have kind of historical hindsight, it is obviously clear that Justice Ginsburg should have retired. As her sometime biographer, um, I can try to think about why she didn't. Yeah, why didn't she? So I think um, this is somebody who accomplished everything that she accomplished uh, by being incredibly stubborn and not listening to anybody else's vision of what she was going to be able to accomplish. Um, And so that was the trait that had gotten her through her husband having cancer, her own bouts with cancer, uh, the doors slammed in her face, a uh, hundred years of precedent that said that women did not deserve equal stature under uh, American law or the constitution. All of these ways in which she had singularly beat the odds, I think gave her a sense that she could continue. I also think like many women, she did not get uh, an opportunity to, to fully come into her own professionally or politically until late in life. So she was 60 years old when she was on the Supreme Court. I think during the time that she was dissenting, she was hugely angry about what was happening on the Supreme Court. And I think she thought that she might be able to stick around long enough to help fix it. If Merrick Garland had been confirmed to the Supreme Court uh, instead of um, you know, blocked and ignored by Mitch McConnell when President Obama nominated him, Um, then we would have come into uh, a situation very likely where Justice Ginsburg would have been the senior justice in not the minority, but the majority. Um, Or if Hillary Clinton had been able to appoint somebody to that seat. So I think she was a very bad political pundit. She believed that, like many people, but in her case, to catastrophic effect, she believed that Hillary Clinton would win. I think she hoped that Hillary Clinton would appoint her successor. She actually said a few times that she thought that Hillary was going to win. Um, mm-hmm. And she was wrong. And was she, wrong. she came really, really close to li- outliving the Trump administration. And I think it will always be one of the great historical tragedies. Um, you know, I think also about, and then this was something that was cited when people urged her to retire, but um, Thurgood Marshall um, retiring due to ill health just weeks before Bill Clinton won the election and being replaced by Clarence Thomas, again, somebody completely antithetical to everything Thurgood Marshall fought for. And uh, and so here we have a very similar example. Um, If she had only been able to hang on a little bit longer, um, we might've seen a different, uh, a different set of numbers. Now, I think that the- But the, you know, the, that the is complicated the, though, yeah, right? Yeah, it's, it's but the balance is, yeah, the balance, look, but I mean, look, this is, this is, that's the big picture. The balance of the court, it was over when Trump won. The election to decide the direction of the Supreme Court was in 2016, when Scalia's seat had remained open because of the intransigence of Mitch McConnell. When Anthony Kennedy retired, the Supreme Court was lost. I mean, if, if, if people are saying now we can no longer rely on John Roberts to occasionally break with the other conservatives, and that's RBG's fault, that is true. But this was over when Trump won because they they had the votes that they needed. Mm -hmm. There's something that's difficult sometimes, probably, when people idealize uh, idealize their their heroes. And certainly RBG, there's a reason for many people to respect her legacy 
uh, to find that her legacy significantly shifted jurisprudence on the court. And recently, Katie Couric has revealed that there was information that she withheld from a, a full quote uh, from Justice Ginsburg, and it related to the matter of Colin Kaepernick and other football players kneeling on the field. And the quote is actually still somewhat hard to get, you know, who knows what Katie Couric's frame of mind was when she was talking to Justice Ginsburg or how she responded perhaps in shock to Justice Ginsburg saying something to the effect that the kneeling showed a contempt for a government that has made it possible for their parents, meaning these black athletes, parents and their grandparents to live a decent life. How do we reconcile that? And it also brings to mind an op-ed that Paul Butler wrote uh, some years ago about how Justice uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, rarely, if ever, hired Black law clerks. Yeah, I believe it was one. I believe it was Paul Walker. Yeah. Not to say that, that, that that's, a, that's a piss poor record. I don't yeah. think there's any sugarcoating that. Um, so I think, you know, well, first I want to touch on, you mentioned people idealizing her and, and idolizing her. I think it speaks to you. And, and of course, our book was part of this. I don't think that that's the reason that she didn't retire. I just want to be clear on that before we get into the Katie quote. Um, because first of all, the, the time, the historical record shows that that can't be true. The first calls for her to retire were in 2009 when Obama was uh, seated and inaugurated. And uh, there were many calls for her to retire. And the pushback didn't come from her fans. It actually came from feminist legal journalists like uh, Linda Greenhouse, Emily Bazelon, Dolly Lithwick, all of whom wrote that it was sexist to suggest that Justice Ginsburg retire. Um, the fandom only started in the summer of 2013, and our book only came out in 2015 after Democrats had lost the Senate. Um, but that said, you know, and, and, I think, and I think it is important, as much as I, I, I'm being critical here of Justice Ginsburg, I don't want to gloss over the reasons that people admired her, um, because I think that they're important, not just, a, and they're not just about her. You know, they are also about a vision of um, of somebody maintaining, having been a feminist litigator, having worked in the trenches of the ACLU, and having unabol- unapologetically continued in that spirit as a justice um, to draw attention to grievous wrongs like the Shelby County versus Holder decision, like Carhartt versus Gonzalez, the abortion decision. Um, somebody who was always uh, willing to use their voice in support of women's rights, and in many cases, racial justice, all of which makes uh, the other elements that you mentioned, uh, the hiring record on clerks, the quotes uh, that the Kitty Cork, the ones that appeared were pretty bad to begin with, right? So this is just even more. I don't think it actually materially changes matters as much as it just sort of intensifies um, the existing disappointment. So how do we hold those two things together? Well, yeah, I mean, do I, don't, I don't think that I am going to break any news to you here to say that um, even some of the most exemplary white feminists have been guilty of racism, at best racial blind spots, but let's just call it racism. Um, in the case of Justice Ginsburg, I think it's hard to take because there is actually a huge body of work uh, in which she recognizes um, both structural bias and personal bias. And, and uh, you know, has written these stirring dissents about this, the, a quote from, from one of her affirmative action dissents that comes to mind, the stains of racial oppression are still upon us. When I interviewed Justice Ginsburg and asked her about this in 2015, 
She said, people who think you can wave a magic wand and generations of oppression disappear are blind. I don't think she knew anything about who Colin Kaepernick was or what the protest was about. I think in her mind, it sort of pushed this button of, and you'll be very familiar with this, the kind of like defensive crouch liberalism, um, the more patriotic than now, because to say that the protest uh, of, of Colin Kaepernick and his fellow black athletes was about the government. I, I don't, I don't know, maybe in the broad sense, it's about government, but it was about police violence to my understanding. And so, you know, later on, she said that she was unaware of the protest when she apologized for the comments that were published. She said that she didn't know she was unaware of the nature of the protest and that she shouldn't have spoken so dismissively. Um, I think she, I think one, she didn't understand the content and two, the the kind of like mid-century liberal apologize for the left say i am patriotic i don't burn the flag she even mentioned flag burning i think in her extended comments um somebody else said to me you know i think that this also comes out of a, a kind of immigrant mentality and, and i'll note that one of the things that's really offensive about her quote is that she imposes the frame of immigration on the descendants of enslaved people which is completely inappropriate and historically inaccurate. But I think in her mind, it was this notion of for her parents, both having been immigrants from the shtetls uh, of Eastern Europe and America having represented a break from the oppression that they experienced where they came from and having voluntarily come here, the sort of I am the immigrant who loves America more than anyone else part kicks in too. Again, none of this in any way excuses the racism of the remarks. But as I was trying to reconcile it with what else I knew about her and then to not see, you know, the the many excellent candidates uh, who could have clerked for her, I think, is is in part a reflection of by the time she was a Supreme Court justice, I think she had a pretty closed circle of a certain number of um, law professors that she relied on for recommendations. I think it would have been incumbent on her to look outside of that. Because I know Justice Sotomayor, for example, has been able to find very diverse clerks. Actually, Justice Thomas has found pretty diverse clerks. It's not difficult to find. Everyone has. I mean, even Brett Kavanaugh, which was part of uh, which was part of the article that was written by Paul Butler, published as an an op ed. So clearly, many people. Yeah, it's not right, and it's it's tragic because I think that somebody like her who experienced so much discrimination should have known better than anyone else um, to to make sure that her own biases weren't limiting who she was giving this enormous opportunity to. But the reality is she didn't. She Mm -hmm. continued to make that mistake again and again. And I think she should be held accountable for that. So it's very interesting. And and we'll move on from this part. But uh, the Daily Beast writes that Katie Couric's RBG cover up shows how we ended up with Trump. And what you've said is that that's probably not true at all um, by her failure to uh, not include the full quote. And some have said that this is really a mark against Katie Couric. Um, and it's not great for Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And it shows uh, various biases. But you can't hang the hat that somehow the election would have turned out differently had Katie Couric actually published the full quote. Yeah, I don't really I don't really understand the argument with respect to the election. I don't think that RB look, I, I don't think that RBG changed her mind about retiring based on one external pressure or another. I think she made up her own mind when people in the legal academy who she respected um, 
including your colleague Erwin Chemerinsky, called for her to retire. Erwin um, did. He received yeah. death threats. <laughs> right. And that's why I don't understand this notion that nobody, everyone was afraid to tell her to retire. She was asked about it in every interview. I asked about it when I interviewed her. Many op at Professor Randall Kennedy wrote up as there was there were many there were many calls for her to retire. There was a whole meta debate about it. And she made her decision on her own terms. It was the wrong decision, but it was not because people admired her that she didn't retire. I, I'll, I'll note, by the way, also that Stephen Breyer is not retiring despite many even stronger calls to retire, and he doesn't even have a fan club. What's the future of the court, of the kinds of cases that the court's looking at now? And what do you see is necessary to kind of right a ship? So many people are now saying that um, they don't have the confidence in the court that they used to. I know that's a lot right there, Erin, and you can yeah, unpack I it mean, however you want. I, I think that uh, in an ideal world, court expansion would be on the table legitimately for all the reasons that Ellie mentions, but it's not in the world that we live in. I mean, unfortunately, we're in a world where uh, the imaginations are big and the ideas are persuasive but the politicians that are in place are trying to cramp them as much as possible and the legal establishment. But again, I don't think that there is any political will um, either in the presidency or the Congress for this. And, and, and if you see what's going on in Congress right now, you can see that even just trying to uh, recognize the reality of many people's lives and legislate as follows has been such a, an incredible lift. Um, and it looks more impossible by the days. You mentioned the, diminished esteem of the court for the longest time there has been a kind of like durable fond impression of the supreme court among liberals and among democrats and i think that that's because of a nostalgia for things like brown v board of education roe v wade uh and then you know kind of being buttressed by things like obergefell the gay rights decision um the supreme court may have you know doled out some uh, advances for marginalized people over the time, over time. But I think the mask has slipped to mix my metaphors. And I think that, uh, if progressives broadly start to be disillusioned with the Supreme court, and that becomes a generalized feeling, there is at least some possibility that the Supreme court will be attuned to backlash and its reputation. This is a short-term thing in the long-term only elections and some, you know, I would say we can't really predict the course of history. We could not have predicted, for example, that Scalia would die in February uh, of 2016. Um, we couldn't have predicted many things. Um, so I think that it's possible that history will surprise us. But I think right now, citizen pressure, the public's pressure on the Supreme Court is kind of the best lever that we have. Um, because I do think, I'm not really sure which ones are going to be attuned to it? Uh, John Roberts, shockingly, has now become sort of like, you know, the court has moved so far to the right that it makes John Roberts look kind of like he's on the left. He's right in the middle. Um, but it is possible that Gorsuch, Barrett, and um, Kavanaugh might be able to be appealed to to at least go slowly. And if they slow it down a little bit, then there might be an opportunity for a surprise death. How's that for optimism? How is that? And we do ask a question of all of our guests, and I'm going to get to that in just a second, which is silver linings. But before I do, are there any particular cases that people should be paying attention to? And people are already talking about the abortion cases. So Dobbs, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, any others that folks should be paying attention to? 
Well, I, I, to me, you know, Dobbs is dwarfing so much else of my attention. I'm, I'm interested to see if the Texas case ends up getting consolidated with Dobbs. It's the six week infamous bounty hunter case. The Supreme Court has made some moves in the last couple of days that suggest that maybe they will seek to combine them. Um, Professor Steve Vladek actually speculated that maybe the court will want to split the difference somehow to say uh, that they'll uphold, uphold the 15 week abortion ban out of Mississippi and uh, strike down the six week ban in Texas that's enforced by private vigilante citizens. Either result, any result would be catastrophic, but it might allow uh, the public, or might allow certain people in the press to report it as a moderate result. So I think anybody who is listening right now, who is passionate about abortion rights, which I have to think is probably everyone listening right now, uh, should not be fooled. Anything that takes away uh, the viability standard that has precariously held together abortion rights in this country uh, would be a giant sea change that would leave a lot of people's rights out in the, in the cold. Well, Erin, we do come to this point in the show, Erin, where we ask people, well, what's the silver lining coming forward? And we've, it's been pretty heavy so far. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But is there a silver lining that you see that we can hold out hope for, or at least reframe exactly what we're seeing or what we're being told? Um, I think some, a silver lining is that the, the activists who are working on the ground um, and the young people who you know, immediately went to protest outside of the Supreme Court, uh, the people who are helping Texans leave the state in order to get abortions are just enormously inspiring. And every day, every week, things have changed dramatically on the ground thanks to the courts kind of volleying the case back and forth. And so I do think that a silver lining is that um, there is so much good work being done to try to um, rise from the ashes of all of these different legal maneuvers uh, to actually help people get care. Not everybody, um, but but I think the, the efforts that are happening on the ground are a definite silver lining. Thank you so much. It has been such a pleasure having you on this show. It's gone by way too quickly and I would love to do it again. You're just so brilliant and I love everything that you write. And so we will be in touch and looking forward to you coming back on this show. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Guests and listeners, that's it for 15 Minutes of Feminism. I want to thank my guest, Erin Carmen, for joining us and being part of this critical and insightful conversation. And for more information about what we discussed today, head to MsMagazine.com and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin. Make sure you look for more 15 Minutes of Feminism as part of our On the Issues platform at Ms. Magazine. We are reader-supported, so be be sure to lift up some love for feminist media. Give us some love by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. And if you want to reach us to recommend guests or to tell us about the show, then write to us at ontheissues@mismagazine.com, and we do read our mail. This has been your host, Michelle Goodwin, reporting, rebelling, and telling it like it is. On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin is a Ms. Magazine joint production. Kathy Spiller and Michelle Goodwin are our executive producers. Our producers for this episode are Roxy Zoll and Oliver Hogg. Our social media intern is Lillian LaSalle. The creative vision behind our work includes art and design by Brandy Phipps, editing by Will Alvarez and Kyle Good, music by Chris J. Lee, and social media assistance from Lillian LaSalle. Stephanie Wilner provides executive assistance.